Well, it is wonderful to be with you today. It was uh, 22 years ago in January of 1996 in the Drakensberg Mountains of South Africa that I first met your pastor, Conrad. He and I were both speaking at a youth conference. It was more appropriate back then for Conrad and I to speak at youth conferences. And we were uh, assigned a room together. So I got to know him well. Uh, it was wonderful to hear him preach God's word. And so from that time on, I've known of Kabwata Baptist Church. Uh, I've prayed for you personally. And from time to time, we have our opportunity in our public services in Washington to pray for you and for your ministry here. It's been wonderful to hear, even as we've been in Lusaka, of so many other congregations begun by the Lord through the work of this faithful congregation. We pray that work will long continue. Friends, our topic today is, as has already been mentioned, prayer. It's a wonderful topic, and it's a topic that we often don't take much time to think about. I'm not sure uh, what friends in Zambia here are like, but Americans are at least in some sense a prayerful people. In the sense that the poll suggests that about three-quarters of Americans believe that prayer actually has the power to change our circumstances. Even if the people who talk to the poll takers don't really themselves spend much time in prayer. They believe it. The people who were least likely to affirm this in the one poll that I'm referring to, and I quote here, are men, baby busters, that means people born after the 1964, 65. Never married people, divorced people, non-Christians, Catholics, Methodists, those who do not attend church, and those who do not read the Bible. But for the other Americans, they believe that prayer works. Now, in case you're in any way encouraged about that, I should tell you that most Americans also believe that it doesn't matter who you pray to. They may say that prayer works, but they don't think it matters who you pray to, and they themselves don't spend time in prayer. When we turn to the Bible, it's not quite that vague about prayer. The Bible is much more clear. Who you pray to is actually understood to make a difference, as is why you pray. Other matters, too, are significant, like where we pray, and with whom we pray, and when we pray. So where can we go to learn more about these things? I suggest that we take our Bibles and open up to Mark's Gospel. So let's open our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, and let's go to chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. I want us to look at two small, often ignored verses, stuck between famous stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. Our text is Mark chapter 6, verses 45 and 46. Immediately He, Jesus, made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Let's pray now as we consider God's word together. Let's pray. 
Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you invite us into your presence, that you invite us to speak to you, that you invite us in Jesus Christ to pray. Lord, we know apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have no right to be in your presence other than to be judged and condemned for our sin. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have made a way for us to be in your presence. We pray that you would speak now to us by your word. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts to understand what it is you have said to us in your word. We ask for our good and for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, this morning I want us to consider what we may learn from our verses about prayer and about Jesus. Remember the context of this. Uh, Recall that this retreat that Jesus had originally called His disciples away on earlier in chapter 6 is what Mark is writing about here. He was rejected in Nazareth, you see, early there in chapter 6. Then He sends out the twelve, they go, and they're surprised at all the things that happen. John the Baptist is killed. Jesus takes the disciples away with Him into the wilderness, but they're followed by lots of people. He's concerned that they're not able to eat. So there's the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. That's what happens just before this in chapter 6. What you see throughout the ministry of Jesus so far in Mark's Gospel is this rhythm of Jesus spending Himself in public ministry and then pulling back for a time of refreshing and, and replenishing. And that's where we come again then here to our verses in Mark 6. Part of this rhythm we see in the public ministry of Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately He made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while He dismissed the crowd. After He had taken leave of them, He went up on the mountain to pray. Very interesting. You notice there in verse 45 we read that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. The word for made here is a bit strong. He insisted. If you're reading the King James, it says he constrained them. Why do you think Jesus did that here? Why did he make his disciples get into the boat? People have speculated that he was trying to separate them out from the crowd's move to make him king. When you read in John 6, this account of the same occasion, you see there that Jesus had just gone through this moment of supreme peril in His mission. Because after He had fed the 5,000, this crowd had attempted to make Jesus their King. We know that from John 6. But Jesus refused. And in our passage, He successfully dispersed the crowd, perhaps preventing a messianic uprising in the desert. You know, the Jews were expecting a Messiah. Various people had come along as popular preachers, and some had even called themselves the Messiah. And there had been political uprising and revolts. That was always a danger in Jesus' public ministry. That's why when you read the Gospels, especially in Mark's Gospel, You'll notice early on that strange thing where Jesus will do a miracle and then He'll tell everyone, shh, don't tell anyone about this. 
And you may wonder, well, what was he doing? Why did he do that? Well, at least part of the reason would seem to be because there were these expectations of a political overthrow. The Jews thought that the Romans would be overthrown and the son of David, a messianic king, would come and establish a new kingdom in Israel then. That's what they were expecting the Messiah to do. So as Jesus did these miracles and people began to put two and two together and decide this looks like what's been prophesied to be the Messiah, the danger was always nearby that he would be seen as a political revolutionary against Rome. So he wanted time for the people to watch. Time for them to hear his teaching. Ultimately, he wanted time for him to die as a substitute for our sins. Jesus was in a moment of peril after that feeding of the 5,000. The people seemed to move en masse to make him king, but Jesus had refused. He successfully dispersed the crowd, preventing this messianic uprising. You know, some people have wondered why we don't read more in secular historians about Jesus. So if you were to go back and you were to read historians from the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, like Josephus, they wondered, why isn't there more about Jesus there? There's more about John the Baptist in Josephus, Josephus than there is about Jesus. Well, friends, I think this is part of the reason why. It's because Jesus specifically and deliberately threw cold water on the idea of him as a political leader. He did not lead a political revolt. And that means the secular historians are not going to take note of him in the same way. It will take a little time for the movement that he began in his life to grow. Anyway, here in our verses, Jesus moved both the disciples and the crowds. He takes control of the disciples. He he made them. He takes control of the crowd. He dismissed them. And then he himself, he went up. I think these verses are very clear about who is in authority. Mainly I want you to notice Jesus' practice of prayer. Or what we can learn from that about prayer and about Jesus. Note first where Jesus prayed. Did you notice that? Verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, I won't make too much of this. A certain amount of detachment from your surroundings can be helpful, especially if you're busy. You need to get away a little bit to concentrate for quietness, to prayer. The more public you are, the more there is showing above the water, as it were. The more you better take care to have great weight below the water, out of sight, in your private life, and especially before the Lord. You realize Pastor Conrad is better known than most pastors of local churches. Uh, Most pastors of local churches do not travel around the world to preach. But what that means is you must be very prayerful for him. That God will keep him close to himself. That the prayers he prays in public will be uh, but the smallest measure of the prayers he prays in private. Before the Lord, spending time with the Lord. So, you can try to have quiet times of prayer during busy parts of the day. Maybe you walk to work or drive to work or you're on a bus and you can try to use your commute time for a quiet time. But there is something to be said for when you can 
heading off to the hills to pray. Or getting away. Or at least taking a walk. Or sitting down with no glowing computer screen in front of you or your your cell phone. But just to pray. I think we can learn from Jesus' example here. But after looking at this, I wonder if the location of Jesus' prayer isn't even more significant than simply encouraging us to take thought of where we can pray. Verse 46 again, After He had taken leave of them, He went up on the mountain to pray. You know, this isn't the only time you find Jesus on the mountainside. Jesus was on the mountain in chapter 3 when He called the twelve disciples to them. In the other Gospels, we see Jesus prayed on the mountainside. And He preached on the mountainside. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. So we're not surprised to find here Jesus going up to the mountainside to pray. But, but why the mountain? What do you think? Why the mountain? Now personally, I've always enjoyed praying from higher places. Just personally. Not so that the reception's clearer. I'm closer to God. He can hear in that sense. But like even when I was an undergrad in college, I was on the third floor in my dormitory and there was a fire escape right outside the door of my room and I liked to have my quiet time. Early in the morning, I would go out on that fire escape so I could look out. I think there's something for me about being able to look out that brings my vision up. Helps me to think of more than just myself. Helps me to look out and think about things. That's personally, it's what I, what I appreciate. But is that all that's going on here? Jesus getting a larger perspective. Well, think for a moment. I think there's more than simply the obvious symbolism of, of going up to God. Where had Moses been when he received his revelation from God? He was up on the mount. And the Lord gave him the Ten Commandments. And where was Elijah when God would speak to him? Well, if you look back in 1 Kings 19, you find he was up in the mountain. In chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel, if you turn over just a couple of chapters, you look there in chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. You understand the significance of that. Elijah, the prophets. Moses, the law. The law and the prophets were bearing witness to the identity of Jesus. So the fact that Jesus went up to the mountainside to pray may be instructive for us about what we should do. Maybe. But it may be even more instructive to us about who Jesus is. What is he bringing to mind in his disciples when he goes up the mountain to pray? 
As the Holy Spirit led Mark to record this gospel, what are we the readers being having our minds drawn toward when we see Jesus going up to the mountain to pray? Are we being taught that we should be expecting some special revelation from God like the people of God got through Moses and through Elijah? That's something of significance of where he prayed. Now, second, let's consider with whom Jesus prayed. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus always prays alone. I don't mean that Mark thought that Jesus never prayed with others. I mean, you just look at our verses, verses 45 and 46. Look up a few verses at the feeding of the the 5,000. In verse 41, we read, And taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Well, right there, Jesus is praying with many other people. but, But every time Jesus is recorded as simply praying, and that word is used, he does it by himself. There are three passages in Mark that narrate Jesus praying, and only three. The first is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You look back in chapter 1, verse 35. We read, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Do you know the other time we find Jesus explicitly said to pray in Mark's Gospel? It's at the end of his ministry. Look over to chapter 14. Verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed. So friends, in Mark chapter 1, we see early in his ministry, after a pressing day of ministry, Jesus removes himself off by himself in praise. And then at the end, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus goes to the garden. He takes his disciples, he removes a few with them, Peter, James, and John, and then himself even from them, and he prays. Now here in our passage, in the middle of Jesus' ministry, right after the feeding of the 5,000, One of the most public miracles he does. And after the crowd seems to be getting an idea that he's the Messiah, but they still misunderstand who the Messiah is, and they they threaten him. It's almost like they're replaying that temptation that Satan laid before him at the beginning of his ministry. All the nations of the world will be yours if you will simply bow down in reverence to me. He could have the crown. The crowd is offering it to him. Jesus has refused But at this crucial time, publicly, what does he do? He removes himself to pray. He sends the disciples on. Immediately, verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, and then he sends the crowds on while he dismissed the crowd. Now again, I I don't know how each of you feels about prayer, but I hope you are paying attention. I don't think that these passages mean that Jesus is against us praying together. Uh, That's clearly not the case. Uh, Some people think that prayer is something, in fact, you only do when you're with other people. 
But the only time you ever pray is really when you're in church with others. But they would no sooner sit down by themselves to pray than they would just walk along singing the national anthem by themselves. Just kind of the thing you do when you're with other people. That's the way they think about prayer. But friends, prayer alone is no less real than prayer with others. We all need to be able to pray alone. Uh, One person has said that we all must one day be alone on our deathbeds. Let that not be the first time. Praying alone is not complicated by the doubts of others. Praying alone has a kind of clarity to it. Certainly Jesus prayed in the synagogue on one day, but then he would also pray alone the day after. This is consistent with his own teaching. You think back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You realize, brothers and sisters, private prayer in that sense saves us from insincerity, from hypocrisy, because there's no human to impress when we're praying by ourselves. When you got up this morning and you opened your Bible and you prayed for God's guidance as you read it, and you read it and then you prayed about what you found there, who saw you doing that? The Lord. But nobody else. Certainly, Jesus prayed in private. Sometimes people feel that it's wrong to ever send others away or to to stop what you're doing in order simply to have time alone with God. It just doesn't seem like that much of a priority. You can do that anytime you want, but Jesus didn't seem to feel that way. Jesus understood that sometimes it was a priority to leave other people. Even people he was discipling. Even people he he knew he only had three years with. It was just a priority for him to go and pray. Brother and sister, can you learn something from that? But after looking at this, I wonder if Jesus' practice of praying alone isn't, isn't even, is even more significant than simply encouraging us to pray alone, though that's a good thing. It's good for us to pray as a church. It's good for us to pray alone. You know, in, uh, in the medieval period in Europe, a serf would pledge fealty, loyalty to their liege lord. And uh, I don't normally use visual effects when I preach, but how many times will I ever be in Zambia preaching? So Conrad, come up here for a moment. I don't know if you've ever seen this associated with prayer, putting your hands like this. Anybody ever seen that? Yes? This is where I think it comes from. Let's say that Conrad is the great king, all right? And I am wanting to pledge fealty to him. In the medieval Europe, the way I would do that, I would kneel down before him, and Someone I would take a picture. Please. Yeah. <laughs> and I would I would put my hands like this, and then Conrad, put your hands outside of mine. Exactly. Now, see what's happening there. He is saying, "I will protect you." I am your Lord, and I am taking him as my Lord. I'm pledging loyalty to Lord Conrad. All right? Thank you, brother. 
One time the Bishop of Rome, in order to show how great he was, before an assembly of other bishops and kings, knelt down with no one visibly there and put his hands like that in order to symbolize that only God was his liege lord. He, the Pope, could put his hands around anybody else's, even kings, because he understood himself to be above even kings. But he himself had no lord but God. I don't know if that's true, but it's a good story. It illustrates the idea of where this fealty, this pledge of allegiance, what it symbolizes and shows. Prayer is, in that sense, a sign of who we are allied to. So Jesus praying alone, in that sense, indicated His authority. He didn't need to be in a synagogue. He didn't even need to be at the temple. He didn't need to have the other disciples around Him. His disciples, and perhaps others, knew that He did this, and that it was to demonstrate that Jesus was working for and directed by no one but God. And God alone. Just like Moses had gone alone up to Mount Sinai to receive the revelation from God. So even as Moses' authority among the people was underscored by him going by himself to talk with God, so this practice of Jesus by sometimes at crucial points, going alone, was meant to evidence that he was taking his directions immediately from God. Note finally, when Jesus prayed. We've considered where and we've considered with whom. Note when. When in the day did Jesus pray? Well, we noticed in uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, early in his ministry, it was very early. Mark 1, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. The other two times that we noticed that he prayed alone were at night, here in our passage, and then in, in Gethsemane. In our verses, it seems to be as it will be in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14, that it was in the evening. Mark implies this. John actually says it explicitly that that's the case. But more significantly than when in the day, when notice when in his ministry it was that Jesus prayed. I've said there are three recorded times of Jesus praying like this in his Gospel of Mark. It's in chapter 1, verse 35, at the beginning of his ministry. In chapter 14, in Gethsemane, at the end of his ministry. And here in chapter 6, our passage here, in the middle of his ministry. Brothers and sisters, each of these were decisive points in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is a model for us in this too. We should pray at crucial times. Like Jesus, our lives should be defined by God's will, by His call. Prayer reminds us of whose we are. We are God's adopted children in Christ. And of what we're about, we're doing God's will. His is the will we intend to live out. He is the one we intend to serve. You realize the most important relationship in your life 
is your relationship with God. It is your relationship with God that defines all the other relationships you have. His is the absolutely basic one. So this kind of prayer, prayer about significant matters with submitted hearts, it will grow your relationship with God. This kind of prayer will grow the roots of your congregation. You know, I say our congregation began 140 years ago this year. It actually began 11 years earlier with a sister in Christ named, named Celestia. Celestia Ferris was the chief washerwoman at the Bureau of Engraving. And she had just moved to these houses that were newly being built in this part of Washington that before that had just been a farm area, Jenkins Farm. And as others moved there, she and some other ladies began a prayer meeting. And it was out of that prayer meeting that our church began 11 years later. Friends, prayer is literally the root of our congregation's life. Do you know we've seen God do great things in our congregation in the last 25 years? In a lot of ways, it reminds me of some of the grace of God I see in this congregation, what God is doing in and through you. Do you know what happened in our congregation around the same time that I came? The prayer meeting was revived. There was a prayer meeting when I got there. It was sparsely attended on Wednesday nights. When I came, we did some things to renew the prayer meeting. We moved it to Sunday nights. And the prayer meeting was much better, grew to be much better attended. And I think as we have more and more obviously relied on God in prayer, showing that it's not fundamentally our power or our energy or our wisdom or our glory that we're about, it is not so surprising to me that God would bless our congregation. Because we mean to be relying completely on Him. Friend, look on your own life. When you're trying to make a big decision, I understand that you may find talking over with this friend or that family member helpful. You should certainly take counsel, take counsel from your elders. But who should you talk with more than God? You want to take matters of significance to the Lord. If you need help on knowing how you should pray and what the substance of your prayers should be, I found great help over the years in this book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul, uh, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. In this book, Don Carson, who teaches New Testament in Chicago in the United States, he writes about each of Paul's prayers. He spends a chapter on each one of Paul's prayers, expounding that prayer, Praying with Paul. And I know that Pastor Conrad has at least one copy that could go in the church library that brothers and sisters could use. There's that one. I think what we learn from Jesus' example here is important. But again, after looking at this, I wonder if Jesus' practice of giving himself to prayer at decisive moments in his life isn't even more significant than simply encouraging us to give ourselves to prayer at such times. Some people may feel it's strange that Jesus would pray at all. I remember seeing the little children's letter, Dear God, who do you pray to? Well, why would Jesus pray? Well, simply, we know that Jesus prayed for others, and He prayed for Himself to be strengthened in doing the will of God. Here in Mark 6, we see it has certainly been an eventful and a draining day. You see, it is not helpful when you read the Gospels to think of Jesus as Superman. That is not useful. Because when you do that, you're, not, you're kind of hiding yourself 
from the reality of his incarnation. He really became a man. He really got sleepy. He really got hungry. He really got thirsty. When he fasted, he wasn't drawing on supernatural powers to I can sustain myself because I'm also God. He was a man who was fasting and he was weakened by that. The Gospels are very clear that Jesus was dependent on his Heavenly Father. He needed guidance. Prayer might help Jesus in discerning what he must teach, how he must teach it. Maybe even some kind of, as it were, divine lesson planning as he's preparing for the next phase of his ministry with the disciples. Perhaps he was troubled by this prospect of his popular, the popular response to his miracles overshadowing his message. He'd just seen this crowd that he'd done a miracle in front of try to make him king. Perhaps he was praying for all his disciples to finally understand who he was and what it meant that he was the Messiah before his time ran out. Because if you look at these next two chapters of Mark's Gospel, 7 and 8, that's what he's doing. He's clarifying, and finally you have Peter's confession very clearly in chapter 8. So he's at a crucial time in the middle of his ministry, making sure that they understand what he means when he is teaching them that he is the Messiah. And so it's no surprise at a critical time like this that he would pray. Friends, his praying was a symbol of his whole life being lived out in fellowship with and in submission to the Father. It was his Father, after all, who had sent him. And it would have to be his Father who would continue to direct him. This time in prayer with God would only reinforce the certainty of Jesus and clarify the source of his direction that he had come to do his Father's will. And ultimately, you know what his Father's will was. Now I say that, but some of you attending here, maybe you've just come with a friend or a family member. You don't normally come to church. Maybe you don't call yourself a Christian at all. Well, let me just speak on behalf of this congregation. You're very welcome here. Every Lord's Day, every Sunday, you're welcome to come and meet with this congregation. Uh, There's no place we'd rather you be than right here. You're always, always welcome. But you need to understand who Jesus is and why he came. That's the most important thing about Kabbalah Baptist Church. Knowing who Jesus is and why he came. That could be the most important thing in your own life, my non-Christian friend. You see, God made every person on the planet. He made everyone in Zambia, even if they're Mormon or Muslim. He made everyone in America, even if they're atheists or Buddhists. He made every person on this planet. And we're all made in His image. We've been made specifically to know Him. But the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve, the first parents of us all, sinned and fell. And in them, we all sinned and fell. In fact, we've all ratified that choice in our own lives. As Adam sinned, so we sin. My non-Christian friend, you may not think of yourself as doing things that are particularly bad, but God's Word says that you have sinned against God, who has only ever been good to you. And because He is good, He will judge you forever. And He is right to. In fact, He will judge all of us. Our only hope is what God has done in Christ. Jesus came. The Son of God was incarnate. He took on flesh. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. And He died on the cross as a sacrifice. That's what Jesus was going to do. 
That was the wisdom that he was praying for, the strength and fortitude to go and give himself finally as a sacrifice in the place of all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. And God would raise him from the dead. He would accept that sacrifice for all of us who would repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And then he calls us all. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm calling on you. This church is calling on you to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ. If you don't know what that means, pray that God will help you understand that. Again, what better room here in Lusaka could you be in this morning? Turn to your neighbor. If you talk to a pastor at the door on the way out, ask them to help you understand what that could mean in your own life. What would it mean for you to follow this very Jesus and so have new life and fellowship with God? Forgiveness for your sins. So Jesus withdrew to pray at important moments in his own ministry so that he could continue to be defined by God's will. The temptations that Jesus faced to care primarily for the body or to rule primarily over the nations or to throw away his physical body These are the three temptations that Satan presented to him early on to wrongly preserve his physical body. They weren't only temptations faced by Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. They were temptations Jesus faced repeatedly during those three years. In chapter 1, verse 35, he's perhaps resolving not to be a Messiah who's primarily a physician, a healer, because all the sick are being brought to him. And he healed many, but he also left. He didn't heal them all. He was being tempted by the physical needs of people. Here in chapter 6, in our passage, at the height perhaps of his earthly ministry, may have been the height of this particular temptation. You know, problems were, were piling up. There was Herod, there were the Pharisees, there were the nationalists who wanted to revolt. And in verse 46 here, he's perhaps resolving not to be a Messiah who is primarily a prophet king, who will rule right now, immediately, with an army as it were. You realize political answers are not the right way to analyze and pursue every problem. They will not solve every problem. They're of great importance. And I pray that the Lord will give your capital city here men and women who are full of wisdom and will use the ministry of this church to help that happen, even as I pray the same for our church and our capital city. But God's final answers for our world will not come through politics. And in chapter 14... Jesus is resolving in the Garden of Gethsemane to be the one who has come to heal our diseases, to give himself as the bread of heaven, to be the suffering servant who bears our sins, and so to heal with his wounds and to rule from the cross. Jesus here in these little verses, by his choices of where to pray and with whom to pray and when to pray, not only shows us something about how you and I should pray, But infinitely more significantly, Jesus is showing us more about who He is. He is God Himself, fully, come to establish a new covenant with a new people who would believe in Him. And so, through His practice of prayer, we see something more of who Jesus is, don't we? I pray that you do. Let's pray together now. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for the way you have loved us in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Thank you, He did not stop at merely fixing problems in our body or in our society. But Lord, we thank you that He persevered, that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your only Son to be our Savior. Thank you for all the ways He so patiently taught His disciples. Thank you for how He teaches us still through your inspired Word. Teach us in our hearts now the truth about who Jesus is and what He's come to do for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.